Good morning, everyone. It's uh, lovely to be here. That singing in your hearts thing is not that easy, is it? We want to raise our voices to God. It's a real privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, In my time in ministry in the Free Church, I've got around most congregations, but it's my first time uh, here this morning, so it's lovely to be uh, with you. Now, before uh, we turn back to John chapter 20, uh, let's bow before God in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we fall before you. We are um, in such desperate need. There is the need of our own uh, limitations. You are a great and awesome creator, God, and we are mortal, but our need is, is even greater than that still. You are a holy God, and we are sinners. And so as we turn to you just now, we plead with you, Uh, that you would uh, have mercy on us, Lord God. Um, We we need your blessing upon us, Lord God. We so greatly desire um, that you would minister to us. We don't want to hear uh, from from men the thoughts of man. We we so uh, desperately want to hear from you. So we ask that you would challenge us, Lord God, if that is uh, in your good and perfect will, um, that you might challenge us in holiness, that you might comfort us, as well, Lord God, and, and we pray uh, that you might save, Lord, how we long to see more people one for Christ. Uh, it would glorify your own name, O oh God, were you to save even at this hour. So we pray, Lord, for those perhaps in here who do not know you, but those at home also, that you might awaken them to the glory of the gospel and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So John uh, chapter 20, and uh, we're looking at verses 1 uh, to 18. Now, I, I suppose the task before me this morning is to, uh, to speak to you and here and those at home about one of the most important and solemn subjects of them all. So this morning I, I need to speak to you about, wait for it, about death, about death. A few years ago, I did speak on this subject in a church a million miles away from here, and it wasn't in London, even further away than London. And I began the sermon that day by quoting that old adage that you'll have heard. You know that idea that death is a taboo subject? You know that, don't you? Death, the last taboo. I began the sermon that day quoting that, and it was true then. I'm not so sure that it's true this morning. Maybe you can see what I mean. Can you? With the coronavirus, our society has had to face death in recent months with some new realism, hasn't it? We've been confronted with death as a society in a way that perhaps we haven't been, certainly not my lifetime, but maybe stretching way back to World War II. Now, as with all things, um, with death, you and I, need to seek to adopt a biblical perspective. So I suppose the question that emerges here is this. Should we, in here, at home, as Christians, should we be as concerned about death and dying as our unbelieving friends and neighbours? Should we be as concerned? And if you say back to me, well, no. Well, if not, why not? Like, what is it about biblical Christianity and the gospel that gives us such amazing hope 
in the face of our own uh, mortality? That's the question, I suppose. Well, to consider these things, just for a very short while, what I want us to do is I want us to look and think about the greatest event uh, in all of human history, and I want us to think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me be a little bit more precise about things. I want us to consider uh, two details, two details that we learn about the resurrection in the Gospel of John. Okay, so two details. I think just for transparency, I'll say this. We're going to look at two details. We will spend the bulk of our time in the first detail. I tell you that so that later on in the sermon you do not panic when I say detail number two. So two details, probably you know, 90% of our time we'll think about the first one. So it probably benefit us all if we have scripture open, if you've got a copy of scripture on your phone or a physical copy and you have it open. Okay, so I've said to you what? I've said we're going to look at two details about the resurrection. What would you expect? To hear next, you would expect at least for me to tell you what the first of those details is, wouldn't you? Maybe I'm feeling a bit mischievous this morning. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep you in suspense. I want actually to, you and I, to, to build up to this first detail. So for the time being, let's just call this detail number one. And I want us to think about the context, the setting of John chapter 20. So what, what, we know this, don't we, John 20? What's happening at this point as we look down at the text here? What's happening? Maybe, I don't know, maybe the first thing that jumps out at you is actually the time reference, is it, that John gives here. Think about it. Jesus has been brutally executed on the Friday. And it's a few days on from that But John doesn't just say this is, you know, doesn't say this is early on a Sunday. You notice how he puts it. He stresses for you, this is early on the first day of the week. You see what he's doing? He's almost emphasizing to you, with this resurrection comes something new. With the resurrection, the dawn of an entirely new week for the people of God. Now, over the years, so much time and energy has gone into an apparent contradiction that we have here, and I'm pretty sure you will have heard about uh, this. It goes like this, that where the other gospel accounts have what? What do they have? They have a group of women going to the tomb. So the apparent contradiction is that John doesn't have that, that John only has Mary Magdalene. Have you heard this? That's a very common accusation about the resurrection. So is Is that a contradiction? I would ask you just to look at verse 2. Think about it. Look, yes, so Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She finds the stone rolled away. She runs back to Peter and John. But what does she actually say? She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, do you see, is there a contradiction here? Is is this shattering our confidence in Scripture? Not a bit of it. John also has the idea of a group of women going to the tomb. He chooses, for his purposes here, to focus on Mary Magdalene. Okay, now, if you're listening to the text really carefully at this point, you know what I think you'll hear? I think you'll hear a starting pistol uh, go off. Do you see why I say that? Because... Peter and John, hearing from Mary, 
the tomb is empty, they begin to run, don't they, with, with John, presumably just because John was younger than Peter, John outstrips Peter. He gets there first, but you can picture it, can't you? He gets to the tomb and he stops. He pauses and he assesses the scene. Now, I don't know you, and I've not been here before, but I am guessing, I'm sure I'm probably right with this, that you know this portion of scripture really well. You've read this a hundred times. You've heard a thousand sermons in John chapter 20. So I'm going to ask you and the folks at home, have you ever noticed the repetition when John surveys the scene at the tomb? Have you ever noticed that he repeats something? Look at it again. Three times John mentions, three times he mentions the linen cloth. And so because this is clearly so important to John in his retelling of the resurrection, probably not come as a surprise to anyone that it's here that we come to the first detail that I want us to linger on this morning. So please hear this. This morning, just for a moment, I want us to linger here on the face cloth, the napkin that's sometimes translated, the burial cloth that was around Jesus Head. Look at verse 7, would you please? Let's read it. So at this point, Peter enters the tomb, doesn't he? What does he see? He sees the face cloth. He sees the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. Now it's in the tomb. Look at the details about it. The face cloth was not lying with the linen cloths, but it was folded up in a place by itself. Isn't that curious? This face cloth around Jesus' head had been around Jesus' head and it's folded and it's separate. Now, over the years, lots of people have written about this, speculated, why is the Holy Spirit emphasizing this detail? So how are we going to deal with it just now? Well, really briefly, I promise you, what I want to do is just mention an error that's frequently made about the face cloth. And then just to mention two truths that I think John is bringing out. You'll follow these, won't you? You'll be kind to your guest preacher, won't you? So an error about the face cloth and then two truths. So here's the the error. Here's the idea. Here I'm going to suggest that John is not appealing to a Jewish custom. Not appealing to a Jewish custom. What does that mean? Well, we all love the internet. Isn't that right? I'm sure the people at home, hopefully, are, are, are appreciating the, the internet. Well, we all love the internet. We know it's lots of positive, lots of upsides to the internet. We also know, especially through the coronavirus, that the internet can be the fount of all manner of misinformation, can't it? All manner of inaccuracies. I want you to understand and appreciate that's very much the case here with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because even a superficial search online reveals that one particular story about this face cloth has really taken root in churches. And I mean really in evangelical circles, circles like ours in blogs and articles. One particular story about the face cloth. So what is that story? Well, the story suggests that what John is doing in chapter 20 is appealing to this ancient Jewish custom with masters and their servants. Let me spell it out and you, you follow along. So the idea is this, that in the ancient world, 
a servant would hurry about and make his master's meal. And then this Jewish servant would sneak off into the corner of the room and watch on. Then the master would come in and do one of only two things, okay? So the master would come in, he would eat, and then he would throw the napkin, and that was a signal to the servant that he was finished with the meal. That's one thing he would do. The second thing is very different. The other thing the master might do, he would come in, eat, and then, listen, he would fold the napkin. And this was an indication to the servant, that though he was finished for the time being and he would leave, that he was actually, the master was going to come back and finish the meals. Everyone got it? So the master either chucks the napkin, he's finished for good, or he folds the napkin and that's a sign that he's going to come back and finish the meal. Now, if you follow that, maybe you see what these blogs and articles do with the story. Do you see it? They suggest that that's what's happening in the resurrection with his face cloth. That Jesus, as he rises, folds the napkin, that the master is signaling to his servants, signaling to his disciples, saying what? That though he will leave them, though he will ascend, one day, the signal of the folded napkin, one day Jesus shall return and come back. What do you think, friends? Sounds kind of nice, does it? Sounds nice. It's the sort of thing that makes for a children's talk in a church, doesn't it? Here's the problem with it. problem is, it's rubbish. It really is. Not only did Jews not use napkins in the first century, that's a Western convention much later, but there is absolutely nothing in God's word that would lend any weight or support to such idea. And we will come across that idea. Now we must push it to the side it is not the case but look at us in here surely we're seeing the holy spirit has repeated these details he has drawn your eye and your attention to the folded face god so we're saying we know what it doesn't mean well what does it mean god let me suggest a couple of things first this please listen please get this john views this face cloth as proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The face cloth proof that Jesus has been raised. See, with me, go back in your mind to Mary Magdalene, just for a second. Now, would you agree with me? Don't shout out. <laughs> would you? You can correct me if you, if you, later on. Would you agree that the conclusion Mary has drawn is that Jesus' body has been stolen, taken away, she repeats time and time again to Peter, to the angels, to Jesus himself. I don't know where they've taken the body. Somebody's taken the body away. She thinks this is the work of grave robbers. Now, perhaps we might tend to be harsh with Mary. Think, well, you should have known Jesus was going to rise from the dead. But in a way, it's not a very natural thing for her to conclude, isn't it? I mean, that's what the Jews concluded. It was grave robbery and... And, and, and hear this as well. Just a few years later on, Emperor, Emperor Claudius had to increase the punishments. Such was the prevalence of grave robbery. This was a very, very common crime. Now do you see it? Now do you see what John's doing for you? As he points you to the folded face cloth, 
He's saying to you, surely, this is not the work of faith. This is not the work of grief robbery. Jesus' body is not being stolen. You think about it with me. Like linen cloth was incredibly expensive in the ancient world. So what sort of self-respecting thief is going to leave the linen behind, right? Or add to that if you want. Like what sort of thief in the real heat of the crime, what sort of thief is going to unravel the dead body before he takes it out of the tomb? I mean, that would be madness. Do you know what I think the, 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 the real clincher is for me what sort of thief (laughs) taking this body out of the tomb grave robbing the tomb what sort of thief says to his accomplice hang on a second I want to go back into the tomb and fold the face cloth no wonder we read what we do in verse 8 do you notice it John now he goes into the tomb he looks at the folded face cloth he realizes This isn't grave robbery, but what do we read? No, he sees and he believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. But I said two things that John is doing with his face cloth. Here's the second. Again, please hear this. John views the face cloth as proof of not just the resurrection. He views the face cloth as proof of Jesus' final defeat of death. You see, we had uh, two readings uh, this morning, didn't we? Two readings from God's word. I'm not sure if that is your regular practice. Um, You know how it is, I'm sure, in churches like ours, Reformed Evangelical churches. If we're having two readings, what do we normally do? We normally have Old Testament, New Testament reading, right? Read the law, read the gospel, and not today. So maybe you're wondering, uh, why on earth did we read what we did with the reading uh, of Lazarus? Well, What I want you to appreciate is that in the way that John writes, John 20, so in the way that John writes the account of Jesus' resurrection, what he does is draw very, very deliberate parallels with that earlier resurrection account with Lazarus. In the grammar, in the text, he's drawing us back to Lazarus. Now, with that in view, I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Have you ever pictured how Lazarus exited the tomb I mean you know that story we've had it read and Jesus calls into the tomb Lazarus come out how does Lazarus come out not being cheeky but Lazarus waddles how doesn't he Lazarus shuffles out of the tomb why because unlike our Lord, Lazarus, is still entirely bound up in the grave clothes, isn't he? In fact, here's where the links come in. John uh, says this. Very specifically, he says that unlike Jesus, that Lazarus had, wait for it, Lazarus had his face wrapped with the cloth as he came out of the tomb. Now, if you see that and you consider how different it was for the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder, do you see the point that John is making in John chapter 20? Do you see it? Where Lazarus was raised, still with need of the grave clothes. The point John is making is that Jesus could discard them as entirely unnecessary. Lazarus was raised, still to die again. Jesus Christ was raised, finished with death, done with death. And in a sense, my wife 
does the same thing. I can talk about her because she's not here, you see. Now, bear with me. What she does, she puts away. She's just done it last week or the week before. She put away our summer clothes, maybe pessimistically, I I don't know, but maybe you do this as well. What does she do? She's going to put the summer clothes in a suitcase. She's going to put it up the loft or at the back of a cupboard. Do you do the same thing? What does she do? My wife takes all of the summer clothes. She spreads them out. What does she do? She folds them to put them away. Why? She folds them. She's done with them. She folds them. She has no need of them anymore. Do you see it? We read John chapter 20 and we scratch our heads. Why is the face cloth folded? But don't we see? This is evidence not only that Jesus Christ is risen. It is evidence that Jesus Christ is raised and raised forevermore. Forevermore. The face cloth folded because your Savior, Christian friend, he is done and finished with death. But then I made you a promise at the beginning of the sermon, didn't I? I said two details. So, very briefly, detail number two. Here, I am going to say to you two words that um, I have to be careful. I have to ask you to be forgiving when I say these two words. You may initially find these uh, offensive, irreverent perhaps, but bear with me. I'm sure you'll see what I mean. So here are the two words. Jesus is raised So what? I wonder if you see what I mean by that. I don't know you. And I don't know the people, of course, who are tuning in. But it may be that there's some in this room who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Maybe some people sitting at home who've just tuned in. They're not walking with the Lord Christ. Can you see that they might ask that question? Jesus is raised. Good for him, right? Jesus is raised. What has that got to do with me? This happened a long time ago. And you can hear it, can't you? You know, you Christians talk about this resurrection being good news. And the person says, well, how is this in any way good news for me? Jesus is raised, so what? I think there's an answer here. But what we have to do is we have to go back and make two very quick unscheduled stops. First, go back to the text with me, would you please? Look at verse 11. See if you can get verse 11. What do you see? Do you you see the idea? Peter and John, amazed. They've seen the empty tomb and they, they scurry off back home. What happens though? Mary stays. Now Mary remains, doesn't she? And she looks inside the tomb at this point and she sees two angels. Everyone can see why, can't you? Again, underlining, this isn't grave robbery. This is a miraculous event. And I reckon, I reckon you can all in here and at home imagine (laughs) what happens next if you set your mind to it. Because as Mary talks to these angels, she gets that really unerring feeling you get when somebody is standing behind you. You know that? You're, you're at a cash machine. <laughs> and you're shopping and you take out 10, 10 pounds and there's somebody standing. You know how unerring that is? It's for Mary. And she swivels around, doesn't she? 
And she sees this figure be- before her. We all know who it is. But do you see what happens? Mary misidentifies our Lord. She gets the identity of Jesus wrong. Now you pause with me there, okay? At that point, Mary looking, misidentifying Jesus. And let's go to the second unscheduled stop. You and I need to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and to the first man. Now, I am sure you good people know your Bibles well, right? You know an awful lot about Adam, don't you? What do we know about Adam? We know that he was created. Perfect righteousness for a relationship with God. What else do we know? We know, we know his wife, right? We know, we know Eve. We even know things like his job, don't we? You know, Adam, Genesis 2 tells us that he was put in the garden to, what was it? To tend and to keep the garden. We know all of this. Okay, well, what happens with Adam? Stick with me. What happens? He's faced with a tree and a test, is he not? Will he obey God or not? And what happens, friends? He doesn't obey, does he? And he plunges all of subsequent humanity into sin. Here's my question for you. Why? You see it? Adam sins. Why are we all plunged into into the consequences of that. You know the answer is because Adam was our representative, wasn't he? Adam was our federal head. And then it begins this beautiful scriptural anticipation. God promises you one day, one day, a new figure will arise. Won't just be a king. Won't just be a judge or a leader. One day, what is it? A new representative of his people shall arise. This figure the New Testament clearly sees fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was faced with a tree and a test. Would he obey God? Interestingly, Pilate in John's gospel has just said of Jesus what God said of Adam in the garden. Behold the man. And if you follow that, do you not see the, and feel the tension in the air when you get into these verses in John 20? The question on our lips is surely the same. Imagine reading this for the first time. The question is, has Jesus done it? I mean, he represented his people well in his life and in his death. Will God accept the work of this new figurehead? And now I ask you, What was the mistake that Mary made? Don't you see it? We're desperate for a new representative. We need a second Adam. And there in the morning light of the resurrection, Mary turns round. And our Lord allows himself to be mistaken for a gardener. I do not see the theological weight, the theological significance of it. Here before Mary in the morning light was the last Adam, the greater gardener than Adam. Here before Mary, the greatest moment, the most important moment in all of human history, here before her was a representative accepted by God the Father. And that is amazing. But don't you see what it does? What's answers our question. What is the question? Jesus is risen. What was this? So what? Don't you see? If Jesus is our representative, then he is risen for us. Jesus Christ raised as the first 
born from among the resurrection. I'm saying to you, Christian friend, you have no need to fear death. Certainly no need to fear death in the way that our society is. Why? Because as Paul tells us, we are risen in him, in Christ Jesus, as our representative, accepted by God. Death has lost its sting. And so I'll end this with a question for all of you in here, young and not so young. And the question is the same for those at home. I do hope you understand that Christ is the gardener of his people and his people alone. You understand that? Isaiah 58, God says to us, you shall be like a watered garden. Jesus promises on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, the garden. Revelation chapter 22, the church is shown is a beautiful garden watered by the rivers of life. Here's the question for you all. As you sit there this morning, does Christ Jesus tend your soul? Has the grace of God, has it brought forth in your life the flowers, the plants of repentance and faith? In short, the question for all, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All people stand behind one of only two representatives. You today only stand either in Adam in utter rebellion and rejection of God or you stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. For you, which representative is it? I sincerely have prayed that this morning if you came to this service in however form not knowing Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to the wonder of the gospel. And I have prayed that you today would do what John did in the tomb, that you would see the folded grave clothes, that you would know the greater gardener, and that you would see and believe. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious God, our uh, loving Heavenly Father, we, we worship you for uh, your words, um, how good it is you have been to us in providing scripture. We thank you more for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the perfect life that Christ has lived in our stead. We thank you for that sin-bearing work at Calvary. And we thank you that you have raised your son victorious over death, and that through repentance and faith we are united to him to even now know eternal life. We pray all of these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.